Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. We give you the tools you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context straight from the smartest folks on Earth, and the action steps you can take to support them. Our guests are journalists, scientists, doctors, nurses, um, engineers, policymakers, activists, founders, astronauts. We even had a reverend once. A few friendly reminders. You can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. If you're among the millions looking for impactful, meaningful work right now, uh, you can head over to importantjobs.com, where we curate open roles on the front lines of the future, as we call it. Uh, You could join a team working in clean energy production, uh, journalism, pediatric cancer research, sustainable food, and more. If you represent a company, you can also post your open roles at importantjobs.com and get them in front of the rest of our amazing community. Finally, you can join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com, curated science news, analysis, and action steps to help you feel better, but also move the needle on progress. And all that in 10 minutes or less. Folks, this week's episode will help you understand how accountability works and doesn't work in the climate movement, how you can get involved, and how the very best in the world are doing it. And I'm so pleased to have two of those with us today. Our guests are Mary Annalise Hegler and Amy Westervelt. Together, they form Hot Take, the podcast and newsletter, and somewhat apart, occasionally, they are some of the most thoughtful, empathetic voices in the climate justice movement, and Amy is among our most groundbreaking investigative journalists, both in print and with her podcast empire, most notably Drilled, which I can't recommend enough. We'll talk about that today. I am so thankful to each of these women, to both of them together for what they do and for sharing their time and energy and lessons uh, with me today. I learned a lot, and I know you will too. Thanks so much. My guests today are Mary Anais Heglar and Amy Westervelt, and together we're going to talk about the empire that they have built together and what you can do to support them. And we're also going to talk a little bit today about keeping the world and institutions and each other accountable. Mary and Amy, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. If you could, if you don't mind, tell me real quick who you are and what you folks do. (laughs) Hmm. So one thing you'll learn about me and Amy is we're terrible at talking about ourselves. So I, I think we should do this a different way. I'll tell you about Amy and Amy can tell you about you're, me. I mean, to be clear, you're in charge at this point. No, 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 <laughs> the rest of it matters. So Amy Westerveld is a brilliant podcaster. She's built the most successful climate podcast there is in Drilled. Um, also a longtime investigative journalist and <laughs> constant exposer of the fossil fuel industry and a deep believer in exposing the root causes of a problem before you start talking about solutions. And I guess, Amy, you can tell them who I am. Yes. Okay. Mary Hegler basically invented climate essays. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, <laughs> I think Mary Anais Hegler is Not far a off. climate justice essayist. And honestly, as someone who has written about climate for a long time, is probably the person that got more people publishing climate justice stuff, period, in the last few years. If you haven't read her stuff, you should correct that. Just Google her. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, she is the person I know I always turn to for good insight into the ways that climate and race intersect and that climate sort of provides this lens on every other justice issue and acts as sort of a threat multiplier on all of it. Yeah. And sorry, I'm sorry. Did you mean climate's a threat multiplier or Mary's a threat multiplier? Definitely both. Uh, (laughs) And we together are the co-creators and co-hosts of the Hot Take newsletter and podcast. The podcast came first. Amy and I started talking about writing, doing a podcast together shortly after we met. And Amy was like, what if we did a news podcast together? And I was like, what if it was news criticism? And honestly, our our thinking behind it is that, 
you know, you always hear that the biggest barrier to climate action is political will. And how do you build political will? You build it through the discourse. You can't get people riled up about something they don't understand. And you can't get people to understand something if you can't talk about it, right? So part of what we wanted to do was like normalize the conversation around climate change. We wanted to do it in a way that was fun, where we were having fun because we were both already really busy by the time we took on Hot Take. And we we're like, if this isn't fun, I'm not going to do it. Like I'm already exhausted. It needs to be kind of an outlet. And so we made it kind of like, the outgrowth of what we were texting about anyway, which was basically how is climate being covered in the news media? Because that was just something that we would bitch about all the time with each other. And we're like, oh, we could talk about this forever. And, it would be and then the newsletter um, was also Amy's idea. It came out. I'll let her talk about that part of it. Well, I mean, we had decided to take a pause on the podcast, but we didn't want to just not be talking about climate coverage. And we wanted to see if we could, you know, raise money to pay for podcast production because it's freaking expensive, as you know, Quinn, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. and we and, you know, we really there were all these great climate newsletters out there, but there wasn't anything that was doing the one thing that Mary and I were looking for, which was kind of curating all of the great climate stories from the week. So it was sort of you'd see newsletters from one particular publication that combined all of their stories from the week, or you'd see newsletters from one person writing about stuff, but nothing that was like, okay, here's everything you should read this week. So that was sort of the idea that we had for the Hot Take newsletter. And then we quickly found that it could be someplace that we could write literally our hot takes (laughs) on (laughs) what was happening in the climate space that week, too. So that's been great, I think, right, Mary? For us, it's like, we're like, oh, I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, and we don't have time to, like, do a podcast for every single little thing that we want to say. Like, we just realized we -hmm. we had... so much to say about this. And like another thing is like going back to why we started this whole endeavor to begin with this kind of um, people would criticize scientists for not communicating well enough about climate change, right? Like one of the biggest questions I got all the time whenever I did panels was what do the scientists need to do to like convince people that this is a problem or convince people to take action on it? And it was like, it's not the scientist's job. It's the media's job to educate the public actually. And who's watchdogging the media? And nobody was doing that. And so we're like, you know what? We'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. yes. Rock and roll. (laughs) I love it. I love the newsletter. I love uh, everything in your empire and all Mary's essays and and all of it. So I'm I'm thankful for it. And I'm glad to expose our community to it a a little more today. Yeah, we're excited to be talking to your audience. (laughs) Give it time. Give it time. (laughs) So... uh, Folks, uh, we like to start with one important question. It usually begin the answer usually begins with the guest cackling at me, but then we actually end up getting something thoughtful. So understand that it's it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but it is fun uh, because I I do encourage you to be bold and, and honest. So we either of you can start, but nothing extensive. Why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> Amy, you laugh first, so you have to answer first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I struggle with this because I don't, I, I am very much opposed to the idea that any one person is mm-hmm. vital. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I think that I am a useful part of a whole, but like... I would like to think that if I wasn't here, someone else would be doing, you know, this work too. Um, and and I don't just say that to be sort of like modest or whatever. It's more just mm-hmm. that I actually think like it it puts so much pressure on each individual to be like, you know, only you can do this thing yeah. versus sort of we're all members of a choir and sometimes mm-hmm. we have solos and, and like sometimes we need to just like fade into the background for a minute and yeah. that's okay too. Sure. So, so yeah, but I think, I mean, I do feel like I, um, I have a somewhat 
unique set of skills when it comes to digging up dirt on mm-hmm. oil executives. So that's fun. <laughs> for sure. We'll take yeah, it. Um, yeah. I love tapping into Amy's skills for that. Just like see something. Like, I'll have a suspicion. I'll be like, Amy, what? I suspect that fossil fuel companies have been funding uh-huh. the police and then she'll go dig it up and like, oh, it was right. <laughs> Um, awesome. I, yeah, I agree with Amy's answer. I don't think I am vital to the survival of the human species. I don't think any one person is like, that would be really problematic if, if any one person were, mm-hmm. For um, sure. I think that, I mean, I don't know. I've tried to do something with the gifts of emotional intelligence and the gifts of like, you know, I, I will say that like what I think I bring to the climate movement um, is one, a perspective as a person of color and one who, you know, is going to be vocal whether people like it or not. Um, I think that's something that's really been for way too long absent is voices of people of color in the climate movement and also voices of artists. Like, I think a lot of people think I'm a journalist. Um, some people think I'm a scientist. They are very wrong. And, but I think the, <laughs> the point of, of, of artists is that they have a lot of intuition and can kind of see or feel things coming. And I think that's what I, I bring to this conversation. I love it. See, we usually get somewhere. It's a, it's a, it's a preposterous question, but now I've asked yeah. it from like 120 people. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear if people are like really yeah. on it, they're like, oh, fuck yeah, I'm vital. Yeah. Then I've got serious questions. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely better when people start yeah. with are, like, that's vital? not me. My job in life is to get my wife's heart beating mm-hmm. by bringing her coffee in the morning and then she can accomplish all the things, the amazing things that she does every single day. So if, if that's the thing that I do, it's yeah. very good. I want to talk about, uh, accountability, whether it's by way of art or journalism. Um, and also because accountability is not something the U.S. does a lot of. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, whether it's reparations or uh, cigarettes or prisons or housing or COVID or fossil fuels, we don't do a lot of that. But that doesn't mean there isn't a a yearning for it in a lot of ways and opportunities to exact it. And journalism has traditionally led the way, but media, as we know, has also been a clusterfuck at times, if not equally egregious, uh, especially when it comes to things like fossil fuels. I mean, the Washington Post probably today ran a feature sponsored by fucking Exxon. So we know that, you know, journalism is not here to specifically offer hope and that just having knowledge doesn't get the job done or manifest itself in systemic action. Community organizing does that, but having the information helps. And with regard to things like climate accountability, nobody's really done more than drilled and led the way on that stuff. You've spent years and five seasons now. Yeah, uh, we're just about to put the sixth season out in a couple weeks, actually. Hell yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um, I mean, no one has done more to document the greedy bastards in institutions and systems behind climate denial and obstructionism. And I mean, we saw unearthed what what happened this week with Exxon wasn't really journalism. It was more activism, probably, because it broke a lot of the rules. You know what? I made that comment on Twitter and the guys who did it were like, actually, we're journalists and we're allowed to do this kind of thing in the UK. And I was like, my bad. I'm sorry. Oh, shit. If I did that, I would be sued to hell and back and I would lose because the US for (sighs) all of our talk about free speech does not sure. allow undercover journalism. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's amazing. That that in this case, yeah. the the means got it done. But look, I mean clearly like literally verbatim what this guy said and and everything you have covered, right? It comes back to money mm-hmm. and greed and uh shifting these power structures. And now we've got these new we just ran an episode with the guys from Clean Creatives. Oh. Awesome. And you've got, I know oh yeah, they're uh, mm-hmm. with Jarrell uh, and Jamie. They're uh, fucking great. And you've got activism groups, uh, uh, you got science moms, Dr. Hayhoe's out there, yeah. and all these other folks. Mm-hmm. We don't have to convince people it's real anymore. Right. Right. We know that it's real. We know a bunch of people lied to protect power and profits. Mm-hmm. You've got season six coming out. But what's next for you, knowing that, I mean, looking around this week, like we're in a different era of doing this thing mm-hmm. because. There's just people who aren't going to be convinced anymore, and that's fine. And frankly, we don't have the time 
to to deal with those folks. Right. So it is shifting the power structures, and we don't need to. I mean, we we should always expose these people. But what is the next logical step for you in your empire that you've built, doing what you do? Well, I can tell you what our practical next steps are, which are there's there's I'm uh, working on two new shows. One is around disinformation and sort of how it came about and how to how to spot it to sort of mm-hmm. um, hopefully disempower it a bit. And I'm dragging Mary into that project a bit too. And then um, the other one is a kind of a drilled spinoff that's following all of the climate litigation because oh, nice. there's, you know, there's actually almost 300 climate cases active all over the world right now. And, you know, they're having varying degrees of success. Some of them have been quite successful recently. Mm-hmm. And what I've been noticing is that the way that media is set up to cover court cases doesn't really lend itself to covering these stories. So it's like, you know, usually a case gets covered when it's filed and when it's resolved. And you don't get any of the backstory of like why it was filed, you know? Mm -hmm. And in Mm -hmm. this case, or like what the legal strategy was and what worked and what didn't and whatever. And so, um, so yeah, we're hoping that this not only kind of shows people the the current impact and like what is driving these cases but also gives people a sense of like oh this is something maybe i could do maybe mm-hmm. i could pull together a case about this and take these guys to court and also even for the attorneys working on these cases like a lot of them don't know what other attorneys are working on <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so being able to sort of help connect all of them to each other's work, I think feels helpful now too. And then after the sixth season of Drilled is really looking at the um, the natural gas industry, or excuse me, the fossil gas industry. <laughs> but then after that, I want to do something that Mary and I have been talking about a bunch, which is looking at the um, what I think is the most critical decade on climate, which is 95 to 2005 and and sort of understanding really well what happened there because we're at Mm -hmm. kind of the same moment again we have almost the exact same number of people who think we need to act on climate change feel very strongly Mm -hmm. that you know we need to do something we have politicians willing to do something we have media coverage we have companies saying that they want to do something all Mm -hmm. of that um in almost exactly the same numbers that we had going into Kyoto in 97. (laughs) And and we still have a very poor understanding of what the hell happened there. That, like, the U.S. had signed on to a binding international treaty requiring emissions reductions in 1997. And what the fuck happened? How did we lose 30 years? We don't have the luxury of those 30 years anymore. We don't have the luxury of even three years anymore. So we really need to understand how that happened and how to make sure that it doesn't happen again. I love that. I I had three quick takeaways. One is that apparently 1997 is almost 30 years ago, which I'm just going to (laughs) go jump out a fucking window. Um, yeah. <laughs> holy shit. I was like, what is she talking about? And then I did the math and now I'm very sad. Yeah. Uh, two, it's like, man, I mean, you're right. I mean, that is some serious sliding door shit, right? Yeah. Like what, what could have been? And all you ever hear is like, well, we didn't do it. And Kyoto was imperfect anyways. And it's like, that can't be the whole story. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And you have, so you have sort of like a ramp up of climate denial. Kyoto happens, then it gets tanked. George Bush gets elected. And then we go to war with Iraq. Like, (laughs) there's (laughs) this very crazy timeline that's like, Jesus. And, and like, there's still, yeah, just a lot of dots that haven't been connected. So, um, so that's the next big project. I love that. I'm yeah. I'm here for it. Um, you guys are, um, especially Mary. You're you're meme professionals. Um, <laughs> and I saw one from someone today uh, that, and I'll put it in the show notes. You know the the one with the dominoes. There's the guy setting up the little domino, and then there's the big domino at the end. And the little domino was a 
like poorly designed Chad in Florida in 1999 and the big domino was three severe weather alerts in New York City yesterday and you're just like, oh man, that's fuck. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, I, I don't really do most of the memes. I, I do some of them, but like when it gets into Photoshop, that's Amy. She's more technological. Yeah, than no, Amy. That's a lot of yeah. work. I still haven't figured out like, how do I do it? Yeah. Like it's a whole thing. I, I'd rather just yell at people. Yeah, yeah. much yeah. easier, much more my style. Mm-hmm. Well, that all sounds incredible, and I'm I'm here for it. Like the more we can hold these people's feet to the flames, we we should do that. Mm-hmm. Mary, I feel like you shortchange yourself by saying you don't do the memes at least because your essays do mean a lot to so many folks. I want to talk about how you focus so much somehow, probably just being a good human being, but the ability to focus that and come from constantly from this place of love and empathy. And you've written about and talked about carving a specific place for yourself and specifically for, among others, I believe it was your nephew. So you can show him this world that that we're dealing with and that we're all fighting for. And it, it reminded me of, and I talk about this all the time, so I think my listeners are probably sick of it, but I just don't care. Former podcast and Boston Globe opinions editor, Bina Venkatarman, wrote a book uh, optimist telescope yeah, she's a friend of ours. and that book yeah <laughs> she she's she's the the greatest yeah. um and there is one quote from it where she talks about being a better ancestor mm-hmm. yeah and that has stuck with me ever since um because it is one of those things that just mm-hmm. everything else kind of falls away and can really help you focus and you can apply it in any number of ways depending on who you are mm-hmm. right for for me a cis white guy with enormous privilege born in 20th century America, right? With the world's most supportive wife as discussed. And Mm -hmm. I've got clean air and Mm -hmm. water and food, right? The least I can do is be a better ancestor than my fucking previous one. The least (laughs) I can do is like host a fucking podcast, right? To be an activist and try to tear down these systems that have, that I have benefited from. But as a mom, it's even harder, right? Because Amy, like you wrote about you, I have to make this choice every day. Do I hang out with my kids or do I do journalism work that benefits other kids? But (laughs) a lot of folks don't have kids by choice or necessity, Mm -hmm. or they're focused on other kids like a nephew or kids in India or Latin America, where it's hot and dry all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. And so those folks are using that quote to make decisions for the long term on a a global scale, right? And and obviously indigenous populations have, have used this kind of thinking forever. It focuses you, right? Having a child or a creed or a talisman. How how does that still focus your day-to-day work and and help you produce these essays that, again, like, move people? I really struggle or, like, I I tits up when I hear this idea that, like, a child focuses you. Because I think that, like, horrible people have kids every day. Rex Tillerson has kids. Donald Rumsfeld had kids. Donald Trump has kids. Like that, that doesn't necessarily follow for me. So I I, like, and I think that this is a piece of rhetoric that comes up a lot in climate is like, I do this for my kids, this for my kids, this for my kids. And it's like, that's uh, other people think they're building wealth for their kids. Right. Like that's not. And also some people are just terrible parents. Um, sure. <laughs> so, like, I, I, whoa, 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 whoa. Amy, yeah, we're standing you right here, Mary. Amy. All right, we talked about this before. But, no, Amy's a great mother, uh, but I've definitely seen raggedy bitches have kids every day. So, sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so I guess like maybe I'm getting caught up in that. Um, and yeah, I do want to be a good aunt. I do want to be a good ancestor, but I also think I had good ancestors, right? Like when I think of my ancestors, I'm thinking of Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin Luther King and James Baldwin, and they were good ancestors. So I'm trying to basically prove myself worthy of the legacy in the world that they tried to give to me. Um, so that's who I'm holding myself more accountable to is the people who fought for me. Um, it's like more like I'm fighting to be deserving of what they, what they gave me. And so that's more of what I'm thinking about and like how it guides my writing and how I show up in climate. It's like, I don't have a choice, but to show up. I don't have a choice, but to do this. I love that. Cause I, I, I think you're right. I mean, we see it all the time. Anytime a 
young woman goes through some sort of abuse, right? Or whatever it might be, or we're talking about um, a, a abortion or health care in Congress. It's always uh, the the white men lawyers uh, who are the politicians are going like, I'm doing this for my daughters. And it's like, well, you should just fucking do it. Like, forget doing it mm-hmm. for your daughters. Like, that's it. So right. I, I totally get why the archetype is is abused and why you would cringe at that for sure. I guess for me, it's just like, how is that? How is that personalized for you? And I think that makes a lot of sense where you're like, well, I'm, I'm also looking in the other direction, mm-hmm. which is like, I have to own up to this and I have to do this because the people before me did and I can't be the one who stops the fight, right. essentially. Right. I think I also kind of think back to, you know, when you were a kid, you were constantly wondering, what am I going to be like when I grow up? Who am I going to be when I, when I grow up? That's how I was thinking of life. And maybe that just goes to show I read a lot of novels and you're always like, how's this going to end? Where's this going? And, yeah. and I was like, I am the person I wondered about when I was 12. Um, and <laughs> I like, I want that little girl to be proud of me. Mm. Yeah. That's so, awesome. I love that. Yeah. She's still struggling, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Amy, what about you? I mean, you talk about like the pure logistics of, and and I was (laughs) rereading both of your essays in All We Can Save, my favorite book. And, you know, you've always been so honest about, you know, quite literally the logistics of like, you know, I'm supposed to be, society and myself thinks I should be hanging out with my kids right now. But also I have a fucking job to do, which pays for my kids, but also helps other kids. Right. You know, are you able to, to not channel it, but I'm guessing like, how does that actually like practically apply itself in your work when you're going after again, like the, the, the mechanics behind what happened from 1995 to 2005, you know, <laughs> does, does that influence you in some way? Cause that's looking back in a way too. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I, I think about, I think I actually, I, I love I love what you said, Mary, because I was like, oh, that's interesting because I, I think it's it's good to think about the fact that um, ancestor doesn't just mean from here forward, but also like what came before us and, and all of that stuff. But um, but I do. I, I think um, honestly, I feel like the thing that drives me most is just like a, a deep sense of unfairness. Um, in general, like across the board, you know, I'm just I like if I see things that are rigged or unfair, it just like it pisses me off and and, and it like makes me want to fight to right that wrong. Um, and I do have this sense and just in terms of thinking about like longevity or whatever, I feel like I have this sense that, you know, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I feel compelled to lay the groundwork for things to change because it's the right thing to do, you know? And and I do look at, like, my kids, and I feel, I mean, I feel terrible. Like, when they talk about doing stuff that I've done that I'm not sure they'll be able to do, it's very depressing, you know? Yeah. And and then I think I, I think that that just, like, fuels the righteous indignation and anger that much more (laughs) right it's also um um, for amy and i we're both very petty um yes absolutely yeah i'm like i want revenge that that shit is that shit is important it really is it's kind of like you're not gonna push me into an early grave and then walk off without so much as a black guy like that's That's just right right. i'm kicking you in the nuts it's happening so that's right i i Yes. I have a, a friend who, uh, through no, uh, he will admit, through no effort of his own, has come into a lot of family money, and he's trying to figure out, you know, how does he do good in the world with this thing? And, you Can know, you give it to me? How you, I know. Well, <laughs> the, the, literally, the thing I told him is, uh, is I was like, I will be your, like, vigilante. Like, you can't, I will do whatever the thing is to just burn it down. Just, I'll, I will, I'm happy to use that money. That's awesome. In a very practical, very dark way, if necessary. <laughs> like, whatever gets this shit done at this point, right? Um, yes. But yes. you're right. I mean, look, you joke about the petty thing, but it works. But it's, all, I love the idea of looking backwards. You know, I just gave my kid, and and it, I, I hesitate to, like, romanticize this stuff. But, you know, I gave, I, I was going through some childhood stuff, and I found a book about the airplane that my grandfather flew in World War II. And I, I gave it to my kid and I was like, look, this is like the thing. This is what they did because you go back to the the memes of of Buzz Aldrin and the guy saying, you, you know, we don't land on the moon or whatever. And it's like, you, you always, 
the lesson is like you always punch a Nazi, right? And right. would our would our generation do that? And it's like my version might be hosting a podcast from Colonial Williamsburg, but you know, it's like <laughs> I, if he's going to get in that fucking plane over the Pacific, which was a nightmare. Well, you know, what what am I up to doing here? I, I appreciate you guys sticking with me on that one. It's 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 the it's the extended version of like why do you do what you do every day? The big question I get all the time, and I'm sure you guys get a lot, is what can I do? You know, and when I respond to them like, yeah. what can you do? Like, what are your fucking skills? What were you into in seventh grade science, or what has recently affected right, you or your exactly. family or whatever? It's not just practically right. like, oh, I'm a graphic designer, I can make memes or signs or whatever. It's also like why do you give a shit besides this thing is scary? Like who in your life makes you want to do these things? And that can be different for a lot of people. I I was just going to say, like, I think it also shifts around a lot, you know, like some weeks it's like, I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about my kids. Some weeks I'm thinking about the past. Some weeks I'm fueled by spite and like, just want to dunk on oil execs, you know, (laughs) like some weeks I'm really, like sad or whatever. It's like, I think actually I'm going to, I'm writing about this for this weekend's newsletter. I feel like part of like a part of climate adaptation that we don't talk about is like the need for people to adapt to the total constant roller coaster that is living through this time period, you know, and like being okay with that, that like you're not going to have a consistent feeling about it. And sometimes you're going to feel like the stuff that you're doing doesn't fucking matter. And like, you should take a break then, you know, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was also, I was just going to say, like, I think that the, there are vested interests in us, not in us being confused about what we can do and what we can That's bring right. to climate, of right? Like for a very long time, it was so, the baseline understanding was like, if you're not an economist, if you're not a scientist, if you're not someone with an advanced degree, you can't engage on this. And you're just at the mercy of, you know, these experts or whatever. Yeah. And like, if they can't get the story across, then sorry, kid, you're going to roast. Right. And so I think understanding that like your confusion about why, about what you can do and what is actually going on is by design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that, that helps you, like, first of all, feel less stupid, right. right? Like, I think a lot of people just don't want to get engaged with it because they feel, like, powerless. They feel meaningless. And they also feel just kind of dumb because they don't understand what's mm-hmm. happening. Sure. But there is decades of propaganda that has gone into making sure you don't understand what's going on and making sure that you feel That's powerless. Right. So, like, it's not your fault that you feel mm-hmm. that sure. Right. So, I think first understanding that and also the reason I uh, do this is because I believe in throwing rocks at bullies. You know, I was bullied as a kid and like they don't go away until you fight them. There's no like talking around them. There's no finding the right words. There's no, you know, avoiding them and waiting it out and hoping somebody else is going to come save you. You have to fight Mm -hmm. them. And so that's kind of what I like in climate action too. It's like, what is the other choice? Yeah. Letting somebody beat you up every day? <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. right. Like, <laughs> sure. And so I think a lot of people like don't want to get involved because it's like, well, I don't know if we're going to win and it looks pointless. Like, so the fuck what? Right. I don't care if it's pointless. Yeah. I'm getting my licks in no matter right. what. Yeah. yeah. So I think the th- one of the themes there is this is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter what your specific application of your rage and your pettiness and your, you know, desire for revenge or justification, whatever it might be, it is, or you're working on the front lines or you're Kate Marvel and you're the first one to see the science and you're just sitting there going, oh, fuck. It, it's hard. And I wanted to just talk briefly about, because it seems like you two have such an awesome work and life relationship and we can talk about it <laughs> offline if that's not the case. No, I'm happy no. to host a session. Oh, I fucking hate Amy. No, uh, of we love each other. But listen, I'm. Uh, I thought about this because uh, I mean, I'm again not sure how much you guys are familiar. Like, we don't just do climate because there's a lot of yeah. other clusterfucks out there, yeah. but there's also some other good stuff. So, we did a lot of COVID work this year, and you know, I've been thinking about. So I was a religious studies major, right? I'm a liberal arts major, but I'm an atheist. Mm. But I took this class called Death in the Afterlife. Mm -hmm. And it's learning about how folks, for themselves, if they know that it's coming, how they handle death or just in aging. But also on the other side, for everyone who's quote-unquote left behind, how how 
how we handle mourning and the practicalities of the end of life in this huge variety of ways, right? And I thought about that because, I mean, COVID is obviously, and climate change are not going to end for a long time. But specific to COVID, we just haven't mourned publicly as a nation, as a, as a, as a globe, as a, as a people in mass for these collective losses, but also with this urgent need for the economy to snap back, right? Mm-hmm. No one has really been afforded the, the time and the grace to handle personal losses in, in the ways that we're usually accustomed to. Mm. And so losses continue for a huge variety of reasons, but it's become this blur. And again, I was re- looking at your guys' All We Can Save essays. And Mary, you had this line where you said, we've entered into an age where these tragedies fade and blend into a continuum that we struggle to recognize as normal. Mm-hmm. And like, that's this fucking week, if nothing else. Right? You did write that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, that's beautiful, Mary. It's, no, it's, 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 it's heavy, but it's true because like we keep calling these things like here comes this disaster or now it's this disaster, but they're just hitting in there all the time. And like you said, there are threat multipliers mm-hmm. and this is normal, but it's going to keep changing and it's uncomfortable and even if you're in it almost sometimes if like especially if you are in it every day like you guys or or some of these folks who've been doing it forever there's just an enormous amount of like internal and sometimes if you're comfortable with it like external sharing and i keep thinking like if this is the way it's going to keep going we have to find better ways to take care of each other and to be accountable to one another Mm -hmm. and i wonder after what you guys have built over the past few years if you have any lessons to folks who are trying to get in this thing, but are like, fuck, this is just scary. Like, I don't know if I can handle it. Like, what should they seek out? What should friends! they work on? What should you they need, look for? You you absolutely need friends that you can talk about this stuff Amen. with. Like, you need, yeah. Like, you totally need people that you can be like, oh my God, I'm so depressed this week. And like, you know, that, that get that. Because I also feel like otherwise, I don't know, there has been this encouragement over the last few years for people to work their shit out in public. And I'm not sure how helpful that is with climate mm. stuff sometimes. You know, like sometimes it's better to have that conversation with a friend who understands what you're going through and like that, um, I don't know, where you can just really be honest about your feelings, good and bad, and you can you can share stuff without, without it coming across as like, th- and this is how you should feel about climate. <laughs> You know, because I feel like, um, like I said, like your feelings shift around and, um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I, I think to me, that's the most important thing, like mental health wise is just like people who, who also understand the problem and are also grappling with it that you can, that you can talk to. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, community is mm-hmm. a big big part of it um honestly that's where me and amy's relationship grew out of like i fangirled out on her on twitter and then we met in person (laughs) and then we became friends and like like we support each other through this and i think our working relationship has come such that like our depression cycles are like it's true it's true (laughs) (laughs) we both kind of start to like run out of steam at the same time you'll notice like we tend to take Twitter breaks at the same time. Like <laughs> it's true. It's it's kind of, it's very synced up like that. And so I encourage people to find like not just a buddy, but friends and like build a community and be able to talk about this without having to like apologize for how you feel about it or any of that sort of thing. Like you need to get it out because much when you feel alone, like that grief is meant to be shared. It's not meant to be suffered in isolation. So there's that. I would also say like, we need a lot more art. We need a lot more artists. I think that is how people grieve and process through things. And I'm, I'm really concerned about us going through COVID and then trying to just go back to life as normal before that, because they kind of tried that with the Spanish flu. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, you got global fascism and, right. and, and the Great Depression and genocide. It, it wasn't good, good. Yeah. right? Like, let's not do that. And honestly, when I look back, Um, to like art around that time you don't see the spanish flu reflected we like and i feel like that is how we process things that's how we find catharsis Mm -hmm. is through art and through talking about things and feeling Mm -hmm. them and we're not i'm worried that we're not going to do that with COVID. at the same time i'm not ready to see my favorite shows with masks on no i'm not right right a little soon 
Now, I feel like COVID is a good time to like represent that in art with metaphors. Mm-hmm. Climate change, we don't need metaphors anymore. Like we should be able to like just hit this yeah. head on. Yeah. But I also think that that's why we've seen this explosion in climate podcasts over the past mm-hmm. few years because people are normalizing the conversations. Before people who just did not know how to talk about it. But if you listen to a podcast about it, um, you're literally listening in on a conversation about it. You learn how to talk about sure. it. Yeah. And there's so much more variety now. So it's like you can you can plug in wherever makes sense for you. Sure. It's interesting. I mean, you're right. It's and and I don't, you know, for folks who are really new to this, for whatever if you're listening to this because of Amy and Mary or because you found Archer or whatever it is, um I, I will say it can be hard to find people who who even if they might tangentially be into this thing that can stomach it all the time. And and finding those boundaries and those friends are important, but it, it can be difficult. I was, I mean, I have this wonderful therapist I talk to every two weeks, and I feel like once a month, he, the his FaceTime pops up, and I'm like, oh, you're in for it today, buddy. Here, let me, let me tell you about, <laughs> like, these 10 fucking things that are going on. But that's also helpful. You know, if you can afford that and you can find something like that, that's, it's, it's, hugely helpful to get through these things and, and to do the work. You talked about how there's so many more podcasts and, and uh, ways in, and that's because it's it's happening. This thing is live. If you guys were getting into this today, uh, is there anything you would do differently if you were just getting started? For instance, if you still had energy and life and, and passion uh, that you would talk to younger folks about whether they're getting into journalism or they want to start getting into essays Besides just like open a blog and get going, you know, what have you learned along the way that could help some of these younger folks that are trying to find their way in the, the actual practical mechanics of it? Mm. Um, I think I th- personally, I think like talk to people that are already doing the thing that you want to be doing. That can be very helpful and like do it in a respectful way, because I definitely like I'm I'm pretty open to talking to any young person that's like, hey, I just want to like learn the ropes or whatever, but, mm-hmm. um, but it drives me nuts when they're sort of like disrespectful of my time, you know? So, so like ask nicely and like, you know, a lot of people will actually, um, <laughs> will actually like, uh, talk to you about that stuff, you know? And then I think also finding again, I mean, in the same way as we were talking about, like finding your personal pathway into the climate movement, same goes for journalism. Like I, I spent actually a period of time in my career where I was really focused on like getting published in certain places, um, or like find and finding ideas that like those places would buy. And I realized that like, that was, just ass backwards, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, that like really I had to figure out what I wanted to write about and was most interested in and then pursue that. And of course, like then you write better shit and like more people want to publish you. Um, So, yeah. And I would say too, like, honestly, if you're, if you're looking to get into journalism and you don't find a staff job right off the bat, like get a stable income job that allows you the time and, and headspace to do some writing on the side. So you can kind of like start building out your, your portfolio and figuring out what you like to do, what you're good at and all that kind of stuff. That is one of the cheat codes to creative, finding your sideways way into creative work is to get a job that pays the bills. It doesn't require your brain Mm -hmm. so that you still have it left for writing at five in the morning or at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, exactly. Especially if like, if you're able to do that, if you have the sort of schedule and lifestyle that like, you know, you're able to do that, then, I mean, I do still think that that's a way in and, and then, you know, I mean, some people have been able to just, you know, like launch a newsletter right out the gate or create a podcast. Like if, if, um, I don't know. I feel like the podcast space is is so crowded now. It's getting harder to break in. But like, you know, when I did Drilled, I was fairly new to audio and I had this idea and nobody, everybody told me there was no audience for climate podcasts. And I was like really, really convinced that it was a good idea. And I just made Mm -hmm. it myself. Like, so I do think like if you feel really strongly that your creative idea will work and you are, are able to just sort of like grind it out and do it. I do still think there's value in in doing that. But I also have to realize that like 
you know, I think there's a little bit of a, a generational um, difference there too, where like, I think Gen Xers are more willing to work for free and I don't actually think that's good. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not sure if that's like, you know, just my age talking or if it's really a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess for me, I, and I'm speaking to like just any kind of artist, I, this is going to sound cocky, but it, I wouldn't have done anything different Yeah, because I'm just not about the business of like criticizing myself for getting involved in trying to like solve a crime, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm not going to like flog myself for like mistakes on climate action up against like some of the most powerful companies in the world. Right, for sure. So there's that artists don't create to be noticed. They don't create for money. Right. They create because it's who they are. Sure. And so just worry about being honest and telling your truth. And there's always only one truth and it's always yours. So in that sense, you're creating for yourself and you are your first audience. So just make sure that like you are telling the full story in a way that resonates with you and don't worry about your audience, worry about you um, and worry about, you know, healing yourself and finding the catharsis and just, telling the truth, right? Like, I think that there's so much focus in climate communications about like finding the right message or the right words or the right emotion to evoke in people. And there's no right, there's no wrong. There's just the truth. And that's what you should focus on. We're very big on gatekeepers in this movement. And it's, uh, it can be pretty self, it can be pretty self-defeating, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I understand that there's people who, who have been doing it for like 25 years who feel pretty scarred by a lack of inaction and a lack of community on it. And mm-hmm. so I can empathize with that a little bit. Like some of the folks who are like, you know, these are the six things like we have to do and we can't do anything else. And because they've been fighting for those six things and we haven't done any of them forever. And now for the first time we have a little money for them. They're like, we got to do these right now. And it's like, yes, of course. But also, you know, solar is now cheaper than ever. And there's all these other things we could possibly do along the way, you know, because mm-hmm. the answer is like kitchen sink. Like we got to we got to do the whole thing. But it's yeah. the same thing to our tent of people, which is it can't just be these these specific people getting things done. Uh, you know, we need everyone. And if yeah. and if your brand of art is, is is essays or poems or sculpture or design or speeches or songs, whatever it might be, then then we need it. Yeah, I would I would also say don't be afraid to like do something different or think di- completely differently mm-hmm. or to do something that hasn't been done because all of the people who told Amy that there was no audience for a climate podcast hadn't tried to do the podcast that she yeah, did. Sure. And also like if they had the answers, if they knew how to fix this problem, it wouldn't still be a problem. Same with like, so, like maybe I'll never talk about. When you started doing essays, right, Mary? Like it wasn't yeah. like Mary wrote her first essays on Medium and then all of a sudden all these editors that like realized, "Oh, like, yeah, we should assign stuff like this, you know? So it's yeah. like, sometimes you do have to kind of show people that what you're talking about will work. Yeah. yeah. When I first started writing about climate and emotion, mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine was like, I would say, stop being so lazy. <laughs> That's what they said to you? <laughs> yeah. Wow. They told me that writing about climate through the lens of emotion was lazy. Wow. There's so wow. many ways to unpack that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They wanted me to like write about like the hard hitting science. And I was like, I feel like that's actually already out there. Yeah, there's plenty of that. Um, oh my God. Wow. Right. What's and wh- what's that person's address and like social security <laughs> number? Just, I could just. No, it's just like, well, oh. I guess we'll see who's right. Wow. wow. Find helpful friends out there, folks, supportive friends who don't really care what your art is, but just want to support you and, and, and your values. And that'll, that'll go a long way. Mm -hmm. But the thing is I did it because I had to, Yeah, like I had to write about climate and emotions because like I, I needed to do that for myself. So I did it anyway. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean that, I think that helps too. For me, I think Mary and I have talked about this too, like having a, a genuine, Like, it's not that I don't, it's not that like other people's opinions don't influence me or that I can't take in new information and like rethink my stance on things or anything like that. But I do feel like I have this sort of core, like, feeling of like, well, if something feels really important to me, I really don't give a shit what other people think. (laughs) 
know? <laughs> like a, a core giving no fucks thing that is that is helpful. Hard headed. Yeah. Yeah. Stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Unfortunately, my five year old is in that phase right now and <laughs> un- his worldview isn't quite as developed to justify that positioning. Uh <laughs> So if you could just yeah. help out a little bit with that, it'd be great. Yeah. Um, I know Amy's got or uh, Mary's got to go rescue her cat, yes. so I don't want to take you guys too long. I really appreciate all of your time and everything you guys do. I have a couple of little quick last questions uh, that we ask everybody before we get out of here. When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? First moment when you realized you had that power. I, I think I'm still waiting on that moment. Yeah, sure. I was going to say that too. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the same. I, I don't know that I believe that. I do. <laughs> I know. Uh, I actually think, again, I mean, I feel like a broken record, but like, I, I actually think that I can tell you the moment when I sort of like let go of searching for that feeling um, mm. and, and sort of embraced collectivism. Um, instead. And that is actually talking to a like 22 year old uh, sunrise person who was like explaining to me how their organization works at, at the local level, like in their local groups and how sort of flattened the hierarchy is. And it sounded like I felt this huge sense of relief in myself where I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like just being a contributor to a broader thing is like so much more achievable and also like such a relief that I don't have to like be, you know, sure. an individual change maker. Yeah. And it's so much more gratifying. Yeah. Right? I mean, to yeah. to to be a part of something, you know, whether it's uh, again, something like Sunrise on the national level or the local level, like you don't have to go sit in Nancy Pelosi's office to be part of something like that because right. there are incredible again like the Science Moms groups or um, the Moms Clean Air Movement. Like, there, there's yeah. just these incredible groups out there that you can be part of, and and God, it feels good. Not just to identify people who you don't have to explain yourself to. Yes, but also it's just it's the threat multiplier, right? But for yeah. the good guys, like I I occasionally get Mary knows this because I complain to her about it a lot. I occasionally get annoyed when people sort of like parrot my work and don't credit me. But the flip side of that is, like, it's fucking awesome that that happens. That's great. You know, like, I want that to happen. No, please stop doing that. I mean, people, please stop stealing it. But it's like, but I do, like, I want there to be, like, tons of people calling out the oil companies and tons of people, Mm -hmm. like, you know, pointing out what they were doing in the 70s versus now or whatever, you know? And, like, Mary's talked about that with the green trolling stuff, too. It's like... Um, she doesn't want to be the only person trolling Chevron on Twitter. <laughs> you know, she wants other people to like take up that. No, because then I couldn't take a right. break. Like take up that mantle and and like and and carry it forward. Um, so yeah. so yeah, I guess I guess in that way, like we have we have like done some things to to inspire change or get other people to like go in in this direction too. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. This is this is probably going to be the most ridiculous version of this question because it's you two. Who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, I mean, Amy. Yeah, Mary. <laughs> Great. <laughs> this has been so fun. <laughs> yeah. Easy. easy, easy. Yes. Awesome. What is your self-care? Because we do, I get a lot of folks who are just burnt out. And oh, yeah. They, a lot of them have found their walk in the woods or Netflix or ice cream or kids or working out, whatever it might be. And a lot of them are still really struggling. Mm. Um, so mm-hmm. not, that, not that someone should parrot your self-care, but um, any ideas, we're, we'll, we'll take them all. Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of taking a break from producing as much stuff and being on social media for a while to focus on self-care for a little while. Cause I'm just feeling like constantly overwhelmed and just like I've depleted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so um, for me, um, physical exercise is a big part of that. Um, I've been like, you know, kind of dealing with a running injury and then trying to recover from and it is not easy. So that's really frustrating. And I just don't, feel with my feel like myself right now. So for me, uh, self-care looks like 
a lot of just being patient, <laughs> which is hard. I am not naturally a patient person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was struggling through a yoga class recently, which is frustrating because yoga used to be like my sanctuary. I used to really enjoy it. It was fun. I look forward to it. But now I'm in a position where like poses that were really hard, were really like that felt really good to me now feel really, really hard mm-hmm. to me. And I had this talk with myself of like, this is going to be hard for a while. And once you accept that something is going to be hard, you don't get as frustrated with the fact that it's hard, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, sure. right? And I think that applies to climate change too. This is going to suck. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to suck. Mm-hmm. You are not supposed to feel good about this. And once you start accepting that you're not supposed to feel good about it, it becomes like you can actually get to a place where you can start finding pockets of joy and humor and feeling okay about it a little bit because like you're not supposed to feel great about it. It's like, you know, finding out that you have an illness or something. You're not supposed to be crunk about that, (laughs) Um, but but you're supposed to, you know, deal with it and learn how to cope. And so that's my biggest trick to self-care. And I'm not always good at it. It's just like understanding that you're not always going to feel good. Mm-hmm. Expectation yeah. setting is yeah. just changes everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you guys read, and Amy, just if you could one second, did you guys read Eric Holdhouse's book came out last year, the year before or something like that? I haven't yet. I started to read it and I, I have, honestly, I have like a pile of 20 books on my, oh, my I, I hear you. that I'm um, just going to get to. I'm the cliche of like ordering new books and while the other ones suffer in the corner. Yeah. Anyways, Eric has this great, it, it's basically about like, look, if we do everything we can, this is what the next 30 to 40 years really looks like by decade, sort of. Yeah. And what's interesting about it is it's a lesson. There's It's a lesson in expectation setting about the practical realities about what are going to happen if we do everything yeah. and why we need to do everything, but also how difficult that's going to feel and be. And also, here's how you can find some joy in that because we, along the way, we're actually going to build something that's better. Mm-hmm. We're not just going to get to zero. And that's going to be really amazing. And we've got to identify those wins along the way. And you've got to find ways to celebrate these things and to come together along the way. Yeah, I loved the idea of that book, too, That because I do feel like there's a, a huge need for more imagining of a future that is neither utopia or dystopia, that is sure. just like a new reality. Um, and we, we don't have a lot of that, you know? Yeah. So it's hard for people to... Um, to not go to immediate dystopia because sure. they don't know what like reality looks like, right? They they just know what like the worst case scenario looks like. So um yeah. Anyway, I, I yeah. like that about his his take or his just his approach for sure. to that book. So, very um, thoughtful. So your yeah. self-care, Amy, go for it. It's so funny because I was gonna say something really similar to what Mary said, which is like kind of letting yourself off the hook of being super productive all the time or being like this climate warrior all the time you know like it's okay for you to like take a day off it's okay for you to take even like a month away from climate stuff if you feel like you need that break you know like we need people to be whole when they're (laughs) working on this issue and like sometimes you just need a break. I do also like on a very, very practical level, regular social media detoxes, fucking great. Mm. Like very highly recommend. You know? Sure. I like was off Twitter for a couple weeks and like just went back on and was texting Mary today that I feel like I need to take another like total cleanse because I got sucked back in. And it's so it's just very negative and it can um be very overwhelming and uh I don't miss it. After like a day of being off of all platforms, I I do not find myself thinking about it at all or wanting to go on there or anything. And I do feel like, you know, my brain is clearer. I'm less depressed. I'm like, you know, more productive, all of those things. So, yeah. It's hard, right? It's hard when you, when you've kind of not defined yourself by this thing, but you work so hard on something that is so big and and for better or worse, you can use the word existential or all-encompassing, whatever mm-hmm. whatever it might be, mm-hmm. to at least I wrestle with sometimes uh, justifying taking a step back, mm-hmm. um, especially when I have 
I mean, I was born into such a preposterous position of privilege and I live it every single day to, to say like, who, who am I to like take my foot off the pedal when, when everybody else doesn't have most of these things? Like the least I can do is everything I can do all the time. And then I get talks from like my best friend. <laughs> we were sitting around a little fire pit one night a couple months ago and he was like, so where do your friends fit into your life these days? And it's like, oh, okay. Got it. But like, think about it this way. It, you use the analogy of foot on the pedal. Imagine driving when you're dead sleep. That's sure. right. <laughs> like, you're not going to take us anywhere sure. good. So you should take sure, that. Sure, step sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're yeah. just, you end up actually being more impactful when you're rested and you're clear headed and, yeah. and you've had exercise and stuff like that. And it's balance, I guess. Well, thank you guys for sharing that. Last one. Um, a book you've read this year, uh, as much as we're all behind on books, that's open to your mind to a topic you hadn't considered before, an angle you hadn't considered before, or has actually changed your thinking in some way. And we've got a whole list on Bookshop for all our guests. Good stuff. I have bought a lot of books that I believe will do that. <laughs> um, but one one book that I am in the process of reading right now is Antonia Yuhas's, uh she wrote a book on the BP oil spill and like, it's a great, it's a great name. I think it's called Black Tide. Oh, that's good. Yeah. She was on, uh, yeah, it's called Black Tide. She was on Hot Take recently. Um, and I, there's a lot about the BP oil spill that I didn't know, um, that I've learned from this book, but my favorite thing is that she has like a whole chapter on the misinformation Mm. and also how Gulf Coast residents like fought back against it with like, they just trolled the living shit out of BP, <laughs> and I love it. Like awesome. they came up with all sorts of like phony Twitter handles, impersonating them. So good. Um, so like I'm not, I did not create green mm-hmm. trolls. Sure, I just brought it right, back. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, billboards all over the city. Like tattoo artists got in on it on graffiti. It was just like it was beautiful, and I I loved reading those stories. That's so. I good. love that, but that's like such a specific example of this thing of like. Your people, like your community can come from something devastating, but God damn, it can feel so good to be part of something like yeah. that. Yeah. Right? right. Yeah. I, my answer to this question is completely weird and unique to me because the only Great. books that I get time to read are ones that are related to my work. And they often tend to be like the crazy rantings of some like PR guy. <laughs> So the one that I read most recently that like shifted my uh, or just like gave me new perspective onto it was written by the VP of Public Affairs for Mobile Oil back in like the 80s. Um, His name was Herb Schmertz and it was called Goodbye to the Low Profile and it is a guide to PR for industry, not just fossil fuel industry, but corporations in general. And it is such an incredible window into how they think about the media, how they think about the public, and like this very, very cynical way that, um, that you know, sort of corporate PR in general um, tries to shift the information uh, that we all get to, to really like shape information in a way that leads to policies that are favorable to them. It was, it was quite good. That's um, wild. That's so specific, but I'm a hundred percent into it. <laughs> it has this really cheesy photo of him on the cover too. And it includes this, like this vignette that he tells to be like, Oh, aren't journalists so awful. But that I was like, Oh my God, why aren't more people doing that today? Cause um, he talks about this like meeting that he had with the wall street journal where he was going in there to really like give them hell for not um, presenting mobile's point of view enough in their in their coverage and for being too biased against the industry and whatever else. And the guy who was the executive editor of the Wall Street Journal at the time, a guy named Fred Taylor, told like he Herb Schmertz is like, I only got to my first bullet point. And then Frederick Taylor said, everything you're saying is bullshit and stormed out of the room. And I was like, fuck yeah, that guy. Like, yes. Um, So yeah, I just, I don't know. I was like, this is great. Reminds me of like all the reasons that journalists should absolutely never, ever agree to the both sidesing of of issues because that is 100% being driven by corporate agendas. Yeah. So there you go. That's amazing. Little window I, into my life. Um. I didn't hear. I didn't hear anything after Herb Schmertz, frankly. Um, 
That's such amazing. Such a good name. Such a I good love name. that. That's yeah. fantastic. We'll we'll throw those guys uh, in the show notes and on Bookshop. You guys got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, I can't thank you enough for putting up with my rambling and my questions, and oh, but no, most importantly, all of the work thank that you. Thank you for having us. No, of course. I'm so inspired and motivated by all, both sides of what you you folks do, but also what you do together. It's it's so powerful, and um, I think I think the the movement, as if if we can call it that, this conglomeration of, of very varied interests and and requirements and needs and people who have been marginalized and affected by this thing can can find a lot of value in, in what you guys do. So thank you, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.